Thank you for joining us for season two, episode number two of Tools University. I will comment right now that the titling this podcast series, Tools University, sounds a little bit uh, presumptuous, but in the context of speaking to people like our guest today, Ed Schultz, we have expert level knowledge and invaluable experience uh, going from coast to coast in North America. Um, Ed is someone who is very, very familiar with our flagship brand of, of waterbent French barrels, D&J, and its sister Cooper, um, Tonelary Valurine, which is a firebent sort of uh, answer to the waterbent excellence of D&J. But something that gets a lot less attention just because we're typically in the barrel room when we start talking about barrels, we're talking shop with the winemakers like yourselves. Um, sometimes it seems like a, an, an incidental item or, oh, and another thing, our poor American barrels, which are outstanding, um, just don't get uh, the limelight. They don't get the time in the sun that the DNJs do, but they, they actually, actually deserve it. And there's a reason why you should be curious about our American barrels under the Barrel Associates brand. Mr. Ed Schultz is going to be here to help me sort of underline that and talk about some of the things that make our American barrels different and give you folks some stuff to think about, about how you could be using them. So without further delay, Ed, good morning. Good morning, Joe. It's a fine day here on the West Coast. Rain is falling. Snow is supposed to start imminently. So it's we're, we're the, the, the temperature is dropping, so we may have we may have the same white stuff on the ground that you have out there pretty soon. But meanwhile, um, <clears throat> I assume the boys in Fresno are hard at work, uh, you know, with, with the fires on and the barrels spooling out of the machinery. So it's um, it's a, it should be a good day in Fresno where this team of Coopers is hard at work building barrels just the way they've been doing it for the last 35 years so I, th I think I think it might be the most together team of Coopers making wine barrels in the United States long ago in Napa almost all wine barrels were American oak barrels in the 60s 70s 80s American oak was the thing on the west coast and at other wineries across the country and as Coopers started paying attention uh, after the, the, the judgment of Paris thing, and they're like, oh, my goodness, you know, they can actually make some wine out there. Maybe they need some barrels. So then innovation started to take, you know, hold in the 80s and 90s and other French Coopers started jumping in and people started exploring that with wine going, oh, my God, I'm really loving this sexy French oak and American oak kind of got diminished and, you know, pushed to the side a little bit but all the great wines of napa that you think of the, the story the historic wines that were game changers were founded on a foundation of american oak barrels so the structure of those wines is second to none the longevity of those wines is exceptional you can taste a napa wine from the 70s it's 50 years old and the color is as brilliant red today as it was when it was bottled. Uh, you look at, you know, half that age French oak wines, you know, from the same vineyards and whatnot, you know, everything's not apples and oranges, but they're turning brick red, they're oxidizing, they're losing their vibrancy. Those old, wonderful wines founded on a base of good American oak are fabulous. So there's, there's page one of the American Oak Manual. It helped bring Napa Valley to what it is now, and we shouldn't forget that history. So this team's been together in Fresno since before I started with the company, which was in 98. So they, and they were a coopering team before that. So I inherited a team of coopers, but my mission was to help them understand how American Oak can be crafted like we would approach uh, a block of cheese. We, we've got different kinds of cheese that's made from the same gallon of milk, but you steer it in different directions with variables of time and temperature. So we did the same thing with barrels. We had a fire bent barrel that we knew how to do, but it could be perfected. We, ha we had brought the water bending technology 
from France to Fresno in 97. And then they were just playing with it. Uh, and so I had a chance to work with them on perfecting that recipe. And then we introduced a third barrel called the Deep Toast, which was a hybrid version of fire bending and, and water bending. So we, we have three basic products, which are three different ways of cooking the wood over fire and arriving at a recognizable endpoint that can help make your wine fabulous. So we're, we're doing what we did 25 years ago, much like the French Coopers, we've advanced, we've perfected, we've tweaked, we've fine-tuned, but we haven't departed from the style that we set in 98. Uh, that is the, you know, the three different versions of American oak. And I think that's, it's a good trio because they're complementary. The fire bent barrels bring richness, structure, recognizable seasoned American oak flavors, sweetness in the mid palate, good spice, good balance. Um, the water bent barrels are more aromatically interesting for white wines particularly, but, but also red. You get uh, more stone fruit flavors kind of coming through uh, a little lighter touch and arguably a better a better cooking depth to the wood because the hot water enables us to preheat the wood so once it goes over the fire we can hit a higher temperature within the stave without burning the wood so we're, we're trying to achieve different cooking levels without burning i mean this is a principle of cooking no matter what you know the Burnt food is not very good. Burnt wood is terrible. You know, arguably that's what they do for whiskey, but it's not good for wine. So we want to we want to cook the wood, but not set it on fire. And we don't want it scorched. We want it cooked and you know wonderfully, wonderfully done. So the the deep toast being the third of those employs fire bending and water bending in a unique way, where we're kind of reducing more of the soluble oak components into the into the water pot diminishing that level that's really that's a big aspect of american oak because it's loaded with flavor it's it's dense hard wood those summer tyloses are you know they are loaded with flavor and you can take some of those out in the water pot and still have almost the same level as you would get from a French oak barrel that's just conventionally done. So the uh, American oak's about twice the flavor component, you know, give or take that to French oak. So you can subtract half in the water pot and still have a barrel that's loaded with flavor. And that that deep toast kind of it's it's a an equilibrium with French oak over a similar cellaring period. So the deep toast barrel is your 18 month barrel for savory character, for umami flavor, for, you know, what have you that, that you can, you can achieve over that length of time without, you know, smothering the wine, the fire bent American oak barrels, that might be a little long, that's more of a short cellaring cycle because the, the wood is ready to give flavor. So fire bent barrels are very appropriate for six month cycles for nine months for, you know, if you want to, want to hit an endpoint fairly fast, you want to use the fire bent barrels. Water bent uh, nine months to a year. To, I mean, you can use them for 18 months too, but it's, you know, that's sort of the, the, the thumbnail sketch. Fire bent, ready extraction. Water bent, a little bit slower. Deep toast, much longer to integrate. The deep toast barrel will not win the sprint. It will win the marathon. So, uh, at, at three months time, you taste the fire, result in the fire bent barrel. You go, okay, that's, yeah, I like that. There's good stuff going there. Deep toast barrel might not show as well at the three month taste, but in the marathon, when you get to the end of the cellar cycle, you're going to go, oh my God, that is fabulous. That is a rocking barrel. So those are my, you know, thumbnail sketches on where to use the barrels, how to use the barrels and why you want to use the barrels. Back to you, Joe. I always enjoy hearing your version of what's available because, you know, there's a, it's a different sort of presentation. I think when well, I, you're, in the, you're the hometown hero of the, the wood that we use to build these barrels. So a oh, lot sure. of our wood comes from, comes from the great state of Missouri. So we have, uh, you know, 
and you were able to prowl around some of these uh, some of these forest neighborhoods, right? So you can you can kind of keep an eye on what's going on. Have you been down to Ozark Stave yet? Not to Ozark not. Stave. Not to Ozark Stave. No, but a couple of years ago, when there was a huge shortage of uh, bourbon barrels, I tripped over a nice arrangement with a very large distiller and. At the time, I was actually thinking about partnering with a guy who um, had the skill set and had the equipment to start making barrels. And mm -hmm. as it turns out, that would have been incredibly bad timing um, because right about that same moment would have been uh, when Bluegrass Cooperage uh, got up and running and I think uh, one other. And, and then the real estate, you know, the excuse me, the landscape changed um, for the the comparison between supply and demand on that but during that mm -hmm. time i got to know some loggers and i got a sort of a free um micro education on how that business works and and where the choke points are and mm -hmm. um there's no shortage of raw material in missouri but the thing that frightens me about the american barrel business is i don't see a plan in place for replacing all of these oak trees that come out of missouri you know, they're not scarce yet. We're still not, you know, we're not at the they're, point where it's going to be the They're Lorax. not scarce yet, but, but when, when I started in this business, the rate of growth of the oak forest was exceeding the rate of harvest by some exponential figure. And it looked like there was, you know, like there was no trouble on the horizon. Now I think the pests that are infesting the forest are starting to make the, the, the foresters a little more worried that, that, yeah, the, the rate of growth of the new trees is not exceeding the rate of harvest. In fact, it's kind of tipped the other way. So I think I think there is cause for concern now. Where there was when I when I started, it was like no, get the trees, sell barrels, get some of these trees down. We need to renew things. And now it's like oh, maybe we gotta gotta look at what what you're saying they're, they're looking at it with a slightly different view towards you know what what time horizon are we on because the the young trees are nowhere near harvest size and the old the old ones which we are wanting to you know to, to use so that the forest can be renewed there yeah some of those the pests are taking them out faster than we can harvest them and they may not be harvest quality by the time we get around to bringing them down so that, yeah it's i need to study this more but but i'm thinking we need to do a chapter three on this on this deal where you're going to take the show on the road down to ozark state then we do a chapter four where we tour the fresno facility where you know we can show some of the things that we do there are some things we cannot we will not show but there's <laughs> some things that we can show to let you know give people a glimpse of you know the magic kingdom where these barrels come out of so anyway, I, I think we can have some fun with this if we, you know, do this, you know, do a, a series of segments on American Oak tutorial. Here is here is where the trees are. Here's where we're splitting the staves. Uh, and I, I think it's easier to get down to Ozark State than it is up to uh, Stagemeyer. That's and this time of year. I don't know about you driving up to Minnesota, but. I mean, you might be wallowing through ice ruts and snow drifts and things to get there. So it's all part maybe, of the job. Maybe we can get you <laughs> all part of the job. That's right. That's right. We, we Remember, got an all-wheel drive vehicle as well for our to my my new location here. We're 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 set with the four-wheel drive car because I'm I'm going to head up to Chelan in a couple of days and. And there, there may be some weather on the way, but we make house calls and we don't, we're kind of like the post office. We don't let a few snowflakes get in our way. We just keep going. Absolutely not. <laughs> and a couple of times over the last few years, I've gotten to present at the cold climate conference, you know, in Rochester, mm -hmm. Minnesota um, was one place. Right. And imagine if, um, if the movie Mad Max beyond Thunderdome were filmed, you know, at the North pole, um, <laughs> It was, it was. Uh, Joe and his snowcat showed up, right? <laughs> I mean, it, it was, I'm trying to think of an appropriate word um, for the cold. How yeah. about, how about oppressive? Um, yeah. Right, I mean, I, right. I walked outside and, you know, in, in this part of life, I've been blessed with uh, the need for corrective lenses and I had a metal eyeglass frame on and I swear that it seared the flesh on my temples when I walked outside because the temperature you walked was outside so low. instantly. 
instantly it stuck to your flesh and you knew you'd made a big mistake. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, I grew up in, uh, in the Finger Lakes. I went to college in Rochester, mm-hmm. New York, which is not mm-hmm. exactly, you know, the tropics. Oh no. And Rochester, Minnesota doesn't play. I mean, it is nasty up there in the winter, mm-hmm. but right. Oh, and, and you know what else is fun about Minnesota? Um, which is going to lead to a question about Minnesota Oak. It's also mm-hmm. really warm in the summer, which oh, is, yes. which is mind bending. I mean, it's nothing for it to get to triple digits up there. Right. It, there's almost as big a swing between cold, cold and hot, hot in Minnesota as there is in Missouri. I think, I think Missouri still wins the, you know, that, category of the lowest low and the highest high but minnesota is close and the soil up there that the trees grow on is more of a granite kind of a you know substructure so we get two different flavor profiles from that northern uh the northern oak versus what we're getting from southern missouri and the ozarks and when we get it from the right soils so um Soils to avoid with wine barrels would be the coal bearing soils of, you know, you get a lot of bacon flavor and uh, salted bacon and that eh, could be okay with wine. It's fine with whiskey. It's not so good to my thinking with wine, not so food appropriate. Uh, it's very you know, cloying and it masks a lot of delicate fruit flavors. So, so coal country is not, is the one to avoid. And then very alluvial, you know, floodplain soils from the upper Missouri river. The trees are very big and fat and happy and they're, and they're great for cutting whiskey staves, but they're, the flavors are not so good for wine. So, um, you know, the, the, those gravelly bench lands that flood a lot, not so good. The, the craggy, you know, sort of limestone soils of Southern Missouri, way better, more chocolate, more interesting spice, more texture. Um, and then that the Northern forests have that, that granite soil. So it's vibrant wood. It's um, got, it's got some aromatic and more almond tones, almond roca in the confectionery camp uh, where we got more of the dark chocolate from the Southern Missouri. So we can get a good interplay of appropriate food friendly flavors just by working with those two wood sources there are other ones that are okay you know elsewhere in the country but these are the two that we kind of focus on and uh, you know <clears throat> one's in your backyard one's a little bit far away you gotta yeah you gotta fire up the snow cat which i assume is parked out front and start tracking your way north if you're going to go visit those <laughs> those forests right now but but uh, later on and, and they do work the wood all year round I mean, if we can get wood cut in the winter months, then the sap is completely down and we can we can make wonderful wood there. The the summer cuttings are probably not as good because the sap is way up in the tree. And that's something we'd kind of like to avoid. So um, our, our best cuttings are really the fall, the winter and the spring. And, uh, you know, we prefer to get those. We prefer to let the wood season at least two winters in the Midwest before we bring it to Fresno. So minimum of two full cycles somewhere in the Midwest to get rained on, to get froze, to get snowed on, to get beat up as, as much as possible. And then we bring it out to Fresno and we can equilibrate it there out in beautiful dry conditions. So the wood doesn't need to go in a kiln ever. We've got our natural drying 100%. This helps distinguish us from almost every other cooper. Certainly any other American cooper located elsewhere in the world is bringing in kiln dried wood. Uh, We do not. Ours is naturally seasoned in the field and then naturally further seasoned in Fresno. And it it rolls into the cooperage, never having been touched by artificial heating or drying. So you get all the sugar, all the richness, all the nice things American oak can deliver without any of the, hmm, you know, other things that other people are, are doing and we don't and and there's a reason for it anyway all right so that's kind of i know that you're the guy to ask us a question about kiln drying if we were in a tasting and mm-hmm. let's see let's say we're in the tasting room so we're not we're not pulling barrel samples but the winemaker has pulled barrel samples and they say 
this is a, you know, these samples are hundred percent new American oak. New American oak. Okay. Um, blind tasting. How do you tell the difference between kiln dried and naturally dried? Very, very easily. There's a, there's a distinct difference between kiln dried American oak and naturally dried American oak. And it shows up in the mid palate. So if you're, if you're tasting the wine and you get a sudden burst of sourness in the mid palate where it's misplaced, so it mimics acidity, but you should get the acid at the end. It should not show up in the mid palate. When you taste mid palate sourness, that is your screaming Mimi, you know, clue that this is kiln dried American oak because it soured the wood. It was too hot and too quick and the sugars got soured in the process. <clears throat> and then you get sour wood, which is going to sour the wine. And if you want to sour the wine, if you have low acidity, flabby wine, maybe that's an okay thing. But if you have correctly made wine with plenty of fresh acidity, then getting it a, a bounce of it again in the mid palate is not right. So, um, you know, in most cases, it, it's a misfit and I consider it a mistake. And, you know, it's something I don't have to worry about delivering because we never go that route in the first place. So we're... I think we're a little bit ahead of the game when it comes to delivering top quality, beautifully seasoned American oak that's wine appropriate. Well, I think that you just uh, you just dragged something out of my palate memory. Um, mm -hmm. There have been many times in the last couple of decades where I'm out, you know, doing barrel samples with customers up and down the Atlantic states, and mm -hmm. every once in a while, I would come across what I thought was grapefruit. And then the minute I tried it out of a couple of barrels, I would end up giving the side eye to some American barrels from a company I've never had an affiliation with and sort of the, you know, a furrowed brow mixed with a side glance because you're thinking, why on earth is this wine in that barrel? And right. it right. shook my confidence in American oak. And for right. years I've, I've been default, you know, just first thing I'll mention when we're talking about barrels is I go straight to the French discussion. And mm -hmm. I think maybe you'll help me, uh, you know, this conversation is helping me to accept that, you know, to not judge a winemaker who prefers American oak because maybe his experience is with good American barrels. Um, mm -hmm. But man, I've had some nasty ones. And I mean, it was heartbreaking. One, one place I can't say a lot was in Northern Virginia and it was a red varietal that grows, it grows really well there. It's actually my mm -hmm. favorite place, you know, in, in the U S for this varietal I'm thinking of, I'm afraid if I get more specific that somebody in the audience will know who it is. Right. We don't, I think we've all tasted bad examples of French barrels and American barrels. And the misfit is so heartbreaking for me when you know, there's only one chance to get it right. And that one chance was squandered. You only get one chance a year to do this thing, uh, you know, harvest the grapes and, and put it in something that's going to be kind and wonderful. And when it's a misfit and you know it, how do you, how do you bring that to your customer's attention and, and go, yeah, you lost. Um, so it's, yeah, it, it, you've got to approach that thing gently and try to, bring them around to a better understanding without insulting them and without saying, well, you, you messed that one up and there's no bringing it back. So. <laughs> here's, and then here's the door, Mr. Bender. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. And then, and then you get shown the door as well. So anyway, it, there's, there's a, there's, yeah. The, the, the politics of, of bringing, bringing them around to a better understanding is a gentle one and you have to be patient. And so maybe that's, Maybe that's why I've stuck around at this thing as long as I have, because I try to be I try to be gentle and say, well, you know, we we can win it again next year if you give us a chance. If you if you work with me, I think we can I think we can improve on this. I mean, I, I see room for improvement. This is good, but I, I know something better if you'll give us a chance to, you know, take a swing at it next season when we've got when, when the stars align and we can get everything, you know, kind of in place where it's, where it's going to work. 
And, you know, in those circumstances where I get the chance to work with people, we do make the wine better. Uh, I mean, I know we're, you know, we're winning more than we're losing. So we're doing something right. And if we can, uh, you know, just get people to understand the right places where our barrels are correctly positioned and the, the, the targets that we can hit, then they can use that information and, you know, within their own game plan and then, you know, use us to hit those targets they want us to hit, use the other people to hit whatever other targets they're trying to get for their complexity and personality and whatever else. And it's, uh, I mean, this is the, this is, you know, when, when it all connects, uh, then you end up with a 49ers or a Chiefs or, you know, a team that's, you know, firing on all cylinders and, you know, you get to play in the big league. So um, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to put our team in Fresno up against any Cooperage group anywhere. The quality of the products that they put out is second to none. And once it's correctly understood by the winemaker clients, then they can use those tools to make a good fit and a good decision and a great result instead of the, you know, the ones that we've tasted and, and, and we recall and the one where Ooh, that hurts. Oh, that could have been so much better with a little bit of, yeah, a little bit of thought and care and understanding and, and knowing what, what was behind the, the Cooperage group that was turning that product out. I would like to play a, um, a word association game, Ed. I want to make sure I'm not taking up too much of your day, but just for fun, uh, I'm going to fire up some things that customers tell me they're looking for in their wines. And I want you to blurt back um, which barrel with what done to the heads, what toasting would do this. If somebody tells me that they love vanilla and toasted marshmallow, what would you recommend? Toasted marshmallow, I would be inclined to go with more of the Minnesota oak. I would say that's a defining characteristic um, of that. That's a confectionery aspect of the northern Minnesota oak. So that I, the barrel would need to have at least some of that wood in there to hit that target. So what's our default percentage of Minnesota to Missouri? Roughly half. The default barrel is roughly 50-50, northern, northern oak and southern Missouri. Okay, so um, you can go you can you can go all northern oak if you choose if you want to if you want to weight the barrel fully to that aspect and you can go all southern Missouri oak as well but the default one is a blend that's roughly 50-50 they're pulling stays from from two carts with two hands at the layout table and kind of weaving that together. Okay, so where do our heads normally come from? The headwood is um you know, similar. Uh, so we can we can do multiple things with the heads uh, that are kind of interesting. So the seasoned headwood by itself is uh, you know perfectly legitimate for giving a lot of polysaccharide to the wine, and it does not have to be toasted. So wines that are you, if you don't want a lot of extra toast character into the wine, then you leave that plain. We can also do a process uh, of water immersion on the headwood. It's a little extra money, but we can we can water, treat, and preheat the wood much like we would do the barrel shell. So that's a water water based uh, you know thing that you can do non toasted. You can do lightly toasted. You can do medium or heavy. I mean, depending on what you want, you can do any level of water water stave treatment toasting that you want. Um, so, so those are kind of like four versions of headwood, unseasoned, I mean, untoast, seasoned, untoasted. Then you can do the regular toasting, just convection heat. You can do the water-based version. So I guess that's really five, five, five complications to throw at the Coopers to try to personalize your barrel. So seasoned, untoasted, Season regular toasted over the you know with the convection heater and then the three versions of the of the water treatment. So we've got lots of things to do with the heads to 
there was a, a Cabernet Franc wine that I used to work with at a, at a winery in, in, the, in Sonoma County where we would toast one head on the barrel. We would toast one head and not the other. It was the perfect fit. I don't know why exactly, but it was just like the right amount of to make it fit with this particular varietal the way they were where they were producing it and it was you know and the coopers are like they want oh yeah okay yes they want one toasted head not both one toasted head per barrel it's fine it was it was the right fit it was the right call and we can do that if, if it's the right fit we'll do it you you call you you dream it up you dream up the best fit for the shoe and we'll make that shoe for you so if we were going back to vanilla and toasted marshmallow we start with minnesota mm -hmm. Would that be a fire bent barrel to create that? Uh, possibly. Uh, how long do you want the wine in the barrel? I mean, that, that's sort of the determining factor. Now, let's say something benign, like 12 months. 12 months? Probably, probably fire bent barrel, yeah. Okay, and then for the heads on that, if you wanted to, we don't want to erase the fruit. We don't want the nose to be completely enveloped by uh oak aromas so maybe we should go untoasted head and should we say medium plus on the toast on the body on, to, on the barrel shell yeah i think medium plus to get a little to get that heat and good confectionery caramelization of those wood sugars and then yeah leave the heads leave the heads alone and it uh the more you toast the heads the the more there's that barrier to wood extraction but also <clears throat> also get more of those converted oak compounds into the wine which sometimes can be too much and the fire vent barrels are already ready to give the shell is ready to give a lot of a lot of that already so you know the more you go the more you get so uh, you know i would say you know be conservative at first and leave the heads alone and see what you get all right. You can always you can always in year two increase the toast level if you want it, but but I prefer to have a pleasing effect that you can you can sort of work with that and go forward instead of if you go oh we went too far, well how far was too far and then you then you're backpedaling and trying to figure it out from the from the get go where where if you incrementally approach it with a very conservative approach, then you can always step up the game a little bit, but it's sometimes it's hard to retreat when you've gone too far. You're not sure exactly where, where you ended up and why you got there. So that's kind of a, you know, a conservative approach is the best one. Where would you say if someone had a very serious Chardonnay problem, um, yeah, let me reword that. Not necessarily a problem, but let's say there was a challenge. They were looking for a barrel with some presence. They have no difficulty getting their Chardonnay ripe. Um, where would you go with a barrel? Say, um, well, let's let's imagine Long Island had an, a nice warm vintage, and they would like mm -hmm. to make a Chardonnay with the presence of oak. Where would you go for mm -hmm. that? Well, I'm instinctively thinking a water bent barrel <clears throat> for Chardonnay. Um, water bending was the sort of became the the kingpin of making great barrels in the birthplace of Chardonnay, where our French Cooper is based. So they became successful on that using that water bent process to reveal interesting, intricate, delightful subtle characteristics of Chardonnay and all of the surrounding vineyards to that cooperage. So, you know, if it's good enough for the birthplace of Chardonnay, I think it's going to be just fine in Long Island. And, you know, we can achieve a very nice effect, a very pleasing, subtle framing effect with water bent American oak that's going to be very delightful. So, uh, you know, water bent medium toast barrel with no toasted heads is the perfect place to start and then you can always dial up from there but you know start with start with the base frame and see how it does okay now i think i recall in your travels you've been to virginia before is that correct yes not recently but yes in, in my my past travels yes i did roam every every wine growing area in the u.s 
with the exception of Arkansas. I didn't quite get down to Arkansas. No, well, <laughs> I've been. A, a There's Post time. Family down there. There's a giant winery operating out of Arkansas that's, you know, ginormous. And I anyway, just couldn't couldn't quite get there. So it's still on the checklist of things I must do. Well, here's a, uh, an Easter egg for the conversation. For me, I can honestly say to the uninformed that there is good wine in every state in the U.S. You just have to find it. And when you go and you find something that suits your palate, it's always fun. But what's really fun, Ed, in my job is when I go someplace where I know they make good wine, but I find an exceptionally good wine. I find a wine I would put in front of anyone. And for me that one grape that is the sit down, shut up and hang on grape for Virginia is Viognier. Okay. They make outstanding Bordeaux blends. So what do you think? Do you think one of our deep toast American barrels would be soft spoken enough to treat Viognier fairly? I I do. I do. I do think that. Yes. And and I, I would go a deep toast, light toast with some version of water processing on the heads so we would, you know, maybe, maybe lightly, you know, we're going to heat the wood and then maybe lightly toast it going through the heater. And so a deep toast, light toast with light water toast heads would likely be the, you know, the best, the best approach for something like that. It's going to be, um, you wouldn't want to do a fire bent barrel because it would just smother the wine. And water bent is getting there. Deep toast is going to subtract a lot of those readily soluble compounds and convert other ones to, you know, a pleasing frame. So yeah, that even even for a short cycle Viognier for nine months or something, I'd want to put in the the deep toast, light toast, lightly water toast heads. Sort of a segue. In mm-hmm. your opinion, if we had something like a very round and ripe either Bordeaux blend or strictly as a varietal. How about, Mm -hmm. uh, how about Merlot from Mm -hmm. say Charlottesville? Um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Would you reach for a fire bed barrel for that? I, I I think you could do a probably, you know, if, if it, if it can only be a single barrel, then yes. But if you can, if you can do a pair of barrels, then a, then a fire bent, and a deep toast. And I think you, I think you cover the spectrum of, of flavors that way with, you know, I'm, I'm not sure you can hit exactly everything with one barrel in that setting, but I think, I think if you use two of them, I think you pretty well cover the bases because you're going to get a lot more <clears throat> palate length using the deep toast barrel, but you're going to get a lot more of the richness from the fire vent. So I think you can, I think you can use both of them in some in some paired arrangement to you know one and one or two and two or some you know modest contribution and and really help them make that a much better wine see i knew this would be fun <laughs> i think that people in north carolina maryland pennsylvania ohio missouri iowa wisconsin mm-hmm. i think they've all tried wines from long island and virginia so those are those are easy places to describe What's challenging for me is, you know, that's not the bulk of the industry in terms of the acreage. When we run into something like, let's say, let's say you're trying the best Marquette in the state of Minnesota or Iowa. Marquette in and of itself, oftentimes when I encounter one, which uh, you could describe as a poster child for the varietal, Mm -hmm. varietally Mm -hmm. correct, very, very well made, balanced as can be. To me, sometimes I feel like maybe I'm dodging a bullet by not being asked which barrel to recommend for that. And sometimes I want to just reach out and say, Hey, why don't you let's throw the rule book away. Let's yeah. find a perfect barrel for this Marquette because we're leaving some something on the table. So All right. You, you played stump the expert here. And I, the, the first answer that comes to mind would be out of the mouth of Clark Smith, which would be no barrel whatsoever, but that's not the right answer for us. So <laughs> I think we have to puzzle this one out. What exactly is the, what, what's the, what is the target uh, we're trying to hit? And then, and then the barrel, the right barrel kind of 
naturally forms itself. But yeah, if, according to Clark, the right barrel is none whatsoever for Marquette. And that's, that's not a satisfying answer for us, but that's, you know, from out of the mouth of the guy who's helped people make more Marquette across the country than probably anyone else. I mean, he is the, he's the Marquette guru that I know of. So well, maybe we need to get him on and, and have him, have him tell us what is the right barrel for Marquette and then see if we can see if we can make him cry uncle when we, when we pose that question. Maybe, maybe this will spark something. I had the opportunity to observe uh, liquid tannin trials with Marquette and it turned out that the control sample, what was in the bottle for sale in the tasting room was a great wine. You know, it was, it was fine. It was perfectly sound. It was enjoyable as it was. Right. But it wasn't the type of wine that you would open all by itself to sit in front of the fireplace with. Mm -hmm. It was something you'd serve with food, maybe finishing, you know, towards the end of a dinner, maybe it would be a nice way to sort of cap it off. But what it needed was a longer finish. It needed a very respectful way to frame the fruit in the nose. It needed a little bit more meat on the bone in the mid palate, just a little. Mm -hmm. It just needed a right. little bit of mid palate support, a longer finish, and just a just a touch of a frame around the fruit. So, of course, you know, with my experience, I wanted to see a medium plus toasted French barrel with water bent with untoasted heads because mm -hmm. I liked the I like the gentle appearance of a classy French mm -hmm. barrel like that. Now, based on what you've said. I wonder if our American deep toast barrel wouldn't be just fine in that wine. I think it could be. I think you could get some mid palate richness and palate length just with a deep toast, medium toast. Uh, just leave the heads alone and kind of see what happens. Uh, I think I think you would see a lot of the a lot of the you know character from the seasoned untoasted heads kind of help pull that wine together. The deep toast process has diminished that, you know, American oak flavor profile, cut it by half. So you've still got a French oak, you know, supply of flavor compound coming out of that shell. And then the, you know, the respectful heads, I think you could, I think you could do very well uh, just, just trying that and seeing what happens. Um, so I think, you know, I think that could yeah, I, I could see it working and, you know, I'd love to put one of those in front of Clark and see if, see if he goes, yeah, that could work. Um, so it would be, uh, that's a, that's a challenge. We've got the, the challenge of the, uh, of the day here is to, to find the right barrel for Marquette. And I well, will... I think I have a guy in mind because looking at the price list, a deep toast American barrel before shipping, of course, mm -hmm. Because yeah. we, ship the, we ship our French barrels from the warehouse where they're unpacked from the container uh, on the East Coast coming out of Virginia. Mm -hmm. We ship the American barrels from Fresno, both made to order, but French with a lot longer lead time. Um, looking at the cost, assuming that, that freight is not the determining factor, a deep toast is literally half the price of one of our French barrels. I mean, it's to me, it seems like it's worth the trial. Yeah, it's 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 interesting how um, how long that sort of general rule of thumb has applied, where even now a six hundred dollar American oak barrel is about half a twelve hundred dollar French oak barrel. I mean, when I started in this business, an American barrel was two hundred and seventy five bucks. You know, a quality one. I mean, they were less than that. You know, obviously, but. But a, a nice quality American barrel is two hundred seventy-five dollars, and the French barrels were five hundred and fifty French francs at that time. The euro didn't exist when I started in this game, so it was about half. And that you know it, you know sometimes exchange rates bring the French oak down a little bit, and it you know it seems a little bit better, and sometimes it's way worse. But but that that seems to have prevailed over the course of at least my career with these things is the American barrel is about half a French oak barrel. And if you can, if you can deliver French oak performance at half the price, I think you win the, you know, the, the cost of goods game anyway. And certainly the, you know, the barrels are second to none. So I, I, you know, we're, we're providing something that helps win the wine game 
the you know the endpoint is delightful to the customer. So I don't know. It, it's it's a value proposition that's been as good in the past as it is now and should not be disrespected or disregarded. We've got, you know, tremendous value coming out of one of the most talented Cooper groups there is in the country. And, uh, you know, it's, it, it's there for people to consider how to, how to win their wine game. Well, Ed, I think that, um, I think that we've kind of said it all to at least get the ball rolling on, Hopefully the audience has some questions in mind that mm-hmm. all the things that we've discussed so far should inspire questions. And that's what this is about. This is how we learn. Um, right. So I'm looking into uh, the idea that you, that you gave me in the beginning, which was to talk a little bit more about the process of how American barrels are made. I guess I tend to take for granted that I understand the process. I've toured so many cooperages over the years that, to me, it's like at a common sense level of understanding. It's like, well, of course, that's how that's done, you know, but maybe people out there would like to know more. And certainly if they would, um, we can talk about the whole process from from the forest in. And I, I agree, Ed, I think that's worthy of some future episodes and will probably necessitate the need for publishing video or photos. Anyway, Ed, thank you so much for your time today. Um, your contact info. You're, you're very welcome, Joe. I I need to get you a 49ers hat so you can wipe that silly thing off your head and put on the, the, the proper the proper logo Are from the best team. You want to <laughs> hear the best dad joke ever? Um, <laughs> okay. That Super Bowl last night was a lot like a three-ring circus. Get it? Yes. Yeah. Mahomes is what? He's not even he's not even 30 yet, is he? Not even 30. Yep. And he has been to four Super Bowls, won three. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's yeah. it's it's a great time. I've been following the Kansas City Chiefs since I moved to Missouri in 2004. And right. the reason is because the Buffalo Bills broke my heart so badly um, back in the back in the Jim Kelly days that I yeah. officially yeah. swore off professional sports in general. And then. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was some dark days. I didn't watch sports for quite a while. And then I moved to Missouri and all of a sudden everyone, everyone my wife is friends with or related to, they're all Chiefs and Cardinals fans. So next thing you know, I'm off to Kansas City to Arrowhead to watch a game. And Chiefs and Arizona Cardinals fan or oh, baseball no. Cardinals? We're talking fan. baseball. Baseball. Okay. Yeah. Right. So, so you're talking, yeah. Okay. Two different sports. Right. Yeah. I mean, baseball Cardinals in St. Louis and football Chiefs. And okay, on, on, on one side of the state or the other. Okay. Yeah, but for the record in hockey, I like Toronto. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, and it's still, still like Toronto. But anyway, they're, uh, you know, friends back home in the Finger Lakes aren't so happy about the way things have gone with the Bills. I think it's great. I thought they, Buffalo was going to do better. I really, early on, I thought they were going to be, I thought they were going to be one of the teams that, you know, would be in the final, you know, handful of, you know, challenging for the, I, and then they faded. I, I really thought they had a chance early on. I was very impressed with the way they played some of those games. But anyway, that's, hey, you know, but you know what my, my nephew said, Oh my God. I'm so glad to see two quarterbacks, one of whom is not Tom Brady. I guess he was, you know, in his, you know, lifetime, it was like Tom Brady and somebody else, Tom Brady and somebody else, Tom Brady and somebody else. And so now you were like two guys who are not Tom Brady were, you know, duking it out and, uh, and whether the best team won, I don't know, but it was a great game. It was very thrilling to watch. So I think best is subjective in that context. And definitely, I mean, I can say that, you know, the team that I follow was not playing their best last night and it was agonizing to watch. It was absolutely just agony. I mean, when you, you know, you take, uh, take somebody with the talent and the raw horsepower of Pacheco and you put him in a losing scenario, play after play after play. And it's like, can you just stop using him that way? Because it's not working. You know, the first half, <laughs> the first half was embarrassing, but hey, you know, the 49ers have got some talent on their squad, but so does every team in the league. You know, they're all good teams at that level. And even the second string players are, are you know, amazing, sensational mm-hmm. players. But it's all about 
you know, what do they put on the field and whether or not they prefer to give the guys any time off. It's usually the same few faces when the chiefs take the field. And I don't know, it's been fun to be, uh, to follow the team the last, you know, 20 years that I've been living in Missouri. It's been, mm-hmm. it's been kind of a fun ride and it's really hard to not love football when you go to Arrowhead or it's not, mm-hmm. it's hard to not love baseball when you go to the stadium in St. Louis and you, you know, mm-hmm. you're across the street from what used to be the Anheuser-Busch campus, you sure. know, you can see the arch. I mean, St. Louis mm-hmm. is a, it's a nice town. And it is, it is. And do you, do you remember Straussenfest in St. Louis, was that still going on when, when you were growing up or is that, uh, no, I was is that really a thing of the past? I don't know. I've, I've been down here in the Southwest corner of Missouri for, for 20 years. And before that I lived in California and New York and mm-hmm. a little time in Texas, mm-hmm. but in Arizona. Mm-hmm. So I don't know a the lot so- of the that. sausages would, would roll out of the grills and the beer would pour out of the the Anheuser-Busch trucks that would, they would park along the riverfront near that, near that park underneath the arch. And, and, and the beer just poured out in buckets and everyone had such a wonderful, I mean, it's like probably be considered socially inappropriate now, but at, at that time, I mean, people walked from downtown, they walked from their, you know, the hill, the Italian hill. We don't, we don't use that word anymore but i mean people walked down to the riverfront park and then they had you know a couple buckets of beer and some sausages and a grand time and then they'd kind of wander home and it was it was a it was like a street party all along the river and i i just remember those those trucks just lined up along there i mean just i can't you know 10 12 15 trucks all with spouts and they were just like you know it was like five dollars for a bucket of beer and it was like it was wonderful, fresh from the brewery, fresh, uh, like they would, they would, you know, run the tanks overtime, like overnight to put fresh beer out on the streets of St. Louis for Straussenfest. It was fabulous. And some of the best beer I ever tasted was, was that, you know, Budweiser beer right from the brewery, right from the, right from the hometown tap was something to, something to behold. And it never translated for me across the country. The Budweiser from Fairfield or from Atlanta or wherever it was in Florida just wasn't the same thing as that that Budweiser from that St. Louis brewery. It was fabulous. Well, I'm sorry I missed that, but I might have been doing <laughs> I might have been doing something else. Like uh, who knows? Who knows? You know, maybe maybe I was at the racetrack in Watkins Glen, yeah. or maybe I was at Burning Man. You know, <laughs> <laughs> who knows? Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, very good. It was fun, fun doing this. Let's let's plan for the, the whatever the whatever the next logical chapter of this is, whether it's uh, down at the stave mill or out at the cooperage or wherever. Let's let's keep this up. Let's have some fun. So, Ed, thank you again. And this wraps up season two, episode two of Eno Tools University, which was all about stuff you want to know about American Oak from Barrel Associates. Thank you for listening.